first I wanted to ask in uh, many of your movies, I will go straight to the point, in many of your movies, uh, various devices, they look alive, they have their own, like, actually bodies, and uh, these bodies have some fluids in them, and they are uh, changing uh, their shapes. So do you perceive the devices are like some form of life? Well, I think the devices are a form of life, but they're, they're a form of human life because we invent them, we create them, and we really technology begins as the extension of the human body. You know, you have a club to hit somebody with or a rock you throw it, or, of course, here we are, you've got extra ears on you, and I have an extra mouth using the microphone, you've got headsets. So I think that technology is very much human and very bodily, and so... I'm just making it clear as a metaphor in my movies by literally making them flesh and alive. But I think in all cases, technology is an extension of the human imagination, first of all, but also the human body. So it's, to me, it's, technology is fleshy. Is it only extension or at the same time something strange to humanity? Because, well, I can see this uh, typewriter who in the naked lunch has a life of its own and uh, some other devices uh, in existence for example they look like threatening actually to their uh, host humans well that's the thing i mean in the sense that technology is an expression of humanness the human condition It can be dangerous, of course, because we are dangerous to ourselves. We know this. We, we don't have to discuss politics to know that. So it's natural that there is a sense in my movies that this technology can be dangerous as well as benign and amazing. But in each case, though, I have to say, for me, it's never alien. You know, it never comes from someplace else. It doesn't come from outer space. It comes from us. And so it's always an expression of the human condition, the good and the bad part of it. Do you perceive in this way all the devices or only some, like, uh, can I say, cult devices, such as TV or computers or cars? Yeah, I think all devices, basically. Yeah, I mean, there's a life in all of them. There's a human genius in all of them. You know, I, I used to take motorcycle engines apart. You know, I had racing cars and so on. When you studied the design of these things, you could practically understand the mentality, the, the sensibility, the humanness of the person who designed it and who made it, you know. And each nationality would also... Italian motorcycles are very different from German motorcycles, which were very different from American motorcycles. So there's... a And even a national character that's embedded in the technology. So I, I think it's, of course, each of these devices does a different thing and has its own influence or not influence on the way we live. But I think just in the general terms that we're talking about, they're all the same. And uh, what, uh, well, if you say that uh, German, Italian and American devices have uh, different personalities, which devices do you think are more human, like Italian or German or American or something else? Oh, well, that's, you're asking me to fall into a trap there, aren't you? Because then I would be saying that one nationality was less human than another. But I, no, well, well, that's what the way I interpret it. No, they're all very human. They're all, they all represent different aspects of the way we live. And each, of course, nationality, but also each person, each culture is, represents a, a complex solution to how to live. How do you live on this planet? How do you live your life? And it's expressed in its technology. 
Well, actually, what I meant, uh, it's not that uh, one nationality is more human than another, but that maybe one nationality has more special relationship with their devices. Do you think it's so they all have about the same degree of involvement? No, I think there's a great passion involved in technology, and it's a basic part of human creativity to change everything, that we have never accepted the universe as we have found it. We were here, we're, we want to be dry when it's raining, we want to be warm when it's cold outside, we, we are altering everything. So I think it's pretty much all human and all basically the same. Uh, do you have special relationship with some special devices? Do you have your favorite devices in your house? Oh, sure. I can become quite passionate about a beautifully designed kind of technology, whether it's a, a new cell phone or a new kind of television set. Of course, I'm very interested in things like high-definition television because it directly affects the, the work that I do. For example, I'm wearing hearing aids now. You see, look at this. Do you see this? Is that not like something out of my own movie? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a tiny little computer that's molded to fit into my ear. And uh, it literally is a computer. It can analyze the incoming uh, frequencies and filter some out and do things with other ones. I've only started wearing these a while ago because I come from a long line of deaf musicians, you know. So I have it's genetically pre-programmed that my hearing should fail a bit, you know. I'm excited about that, you know, because it, it actually enhances uh, my life. But it's also a beautiful little creature, which I have to deal with every day. I have to ch clean it, change the batteries, you know, you get wax in it and so on. So it's a very intimate piece of technology, uh, just like people who wear pacemakers that are actually, the batteries are actually right under their skin and so on. So the things that I show in my movies, I don't think are so really fantastic. They're just a slight exaggeration of things that we've been living with for quite a long time. The bodies in your movies are morphed to quite spectacular. So do you think that people should expect something strange from their bodies? that bodies are capable of like changing unexpectedly or something like that? Uh, well, I think everybody knows that. I mean, people are, of course, the most obvious fears are things like heart attacks and cancer and usually negative things. But if you watch a baby grow, you see the fantastic, uh, you know, bodies are constantly changing. People are constantly morphing. And when you get to be my age, you know, every time you see a friend, he's changed. You know, he's gotten older, he's grayer, he's fatter. So bodies are capable of all kinds of surprises, good and bad. And really people, you know, we have a, a feeling that our bodies are a constant, you know, in the universe, that we at least know what our bodies are. But in fact, when you think that our bodies are in fact an accumulation of cells that themselves are constantly dying and renewing themselves, I mean, our bodies are, it's in a way, it's like an ant hive, you know, it's like a beehive, it's of constant, if each cell is like its own insect, you know, you, we're constantly, there's incredible activity going on, we just don't see it. So uh, it's just my understanding of that that I try to express in the films. But I think that it's literally true, though. It's not science fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think of all this uh, bioengineering about, the, well, now the people are capable of changing the uh, genetic code of tomatoes? What do you expect it will start with humans, like in our lifetime? Oh, we, we already are. You're a little behind the times. I mean, we already are changing the gen genetic code of humans. We are already doing it. And there are many therapies. Gene therapy is a whole new field of medicine in which uh, altering certain genes of a person 
who is an adult, not who's a baby or a fetus, is already happening. Experiments are being done, and it's inevitable. I think, you know, we, we humans have always had a passion come to the some primal understanding of what human life is physically as well as mentally and intellectually and so on. And uh, so it's inevitable that we should dive into the most basic primitive controlling part of human existence in the human body and try to alter it, try to control it, try to understand it. And of course, like we do with building houses and so on, try to improve it the way we tried to improve the environment. Now we try to improve our bodies. And of course, this goes back to very primitive times. We've done that by painting our bodies, by piercing our bodies, you know, many primitive tribes, and, and of course we know from prehistoric times, always were altering their bodies somehow with whatever technology was available. So we are just doing that, continuing to do that, but with much more sophisticated technology. What's going on now? It's uh, they're trying to correct some, I don't know, uh, nature uh, mistakes by this genetic uh, engineering. But I do mean it's uh, closer to what you just said. It's like, uh, I do expect that people will uh, grow, like, I don't know, in another 10 years, they will start to grow an extra pair of arms, for example, or changing their face form, like, uh, not to be more beautiful, but to be like, I don't know, to look like some uh, alien creature. Do you expect the things that happening in, uh, for example, William Gibson books, uh, when uh, people in um, virtual reality starting to choose themselves like avatars that uh, do not look like themselves at all, they will start to happen in uh, everyday life, in uh, real life, if, it, if there is any real life, of course. Uh, yeah, I think it's already happening. I had some meetings with uh, the French uh, performance artist Orlan, and she has horns in her face. She has had implants so that she has horns sticking out of her forehead, and she's she's altered all kinds of parts of her body, and she does these with by having surgery in public as a performance. Uh, there are many other performance artists uh, who have given themselves extra ears. So there, there are people who are trying with the, with the technology we have already to turn themselves into some kind of freaks and aliens. Although I think that certainly plastic surgery, as we know it, cosmetic surgery, is the more common version of that. But there's no reason to say that you couldn't, instead of making your body or your face conform to some ideal of beauty, that you might make it conform to some ideal of fantasy, you know, of uh, make yourself into some kind of unicorn or something. So there are people who are doing exactly what you've said. Uh, the idea of growing extra arms, that's different because it's... Um, You know, the body has its symmetry, its balance, its functionality, and uh, it might be difficult to do something like that. There are also people who are amputating limbs, though, because of the feeling that they somehow, it's, a, it's a sort of an interesting new disease of people who feel that they have too many limbs, and they cut off a limb. They try to find a surgeon who will amputate a leg or an arm, and uh, this has been well documented. So, as I say, we seem somehow to have some idea of what we should be physically that does not conform to the actual way that we are 
and uh, so it's natural that these things should should happen and and it's I think it's just and not that I believe in destiny in the sense of uh, you know a, sort of a god-given destiny because I am an atheist but uh, but uh, if there is such a thing as human destiny because of our nature, then that is it, that we shall change everything, including our bodies. I wonder why now uh, where plastic surgery can do it. It's strange that nobody, like no woman, they can make their uh, teeth better, but no woman, uh, as I know it, asked surgeons to make your extra pair of teeth, for example. Mm-hmm. Why so? What, what do you think? Or do you think it just uh, they tried, but the, like uh, the surgeries uh, do not want to do it? They're afraid. I have a feeling that you could probably find somewhere in the world someone who has done that, but uh, it's only a matter of will, you know, because obviously you could do that. I mean, it's very yes. possible to do. So would they be real and functioning? Well, that would be more difficult. You know, could you actually feed your babies with three breasts? Well, probably not with the middle one, you know. But um, I'm willing to bet that I could probably find, you go on the internet or something, and you'll probably find somebody who's actually done that. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's uh, natural for a man to morph his body? Do you think it's a good thing? Sorry for such a plain question, but... Well, I cannot put an answer away. Do you think it's a good thing or it's a dangerous thing? Well, I think it's basically a good thing. And it's also an inevitable thing. Because, as I say, we have been changing our bodies from the beginning of recorded time and, and earlier. At first, as as I said, in the primitive ways. And now, so it's an inevitable thing. And in that sense, I suppose it's it's not even relevant to say that it's good or bad. It's here. It's always been here. It's always what we do. I mean, even just to the point where you take uh, aspirin to stop yourself from having a headache. That's changing your body, you know, from its what whatever it's doing naturally. On the other hand, you might have the headache because of some technological thing that isn't normal. So it's sort of piling abnormality on abnormality and i guess you have to accept that we are the kind of we are the morphing creature you know that's what we are we are cyborgs we are we are already about the video drum movie it starts when uh, well it doesn't start but at some moment the woman says to this wood character that uh, those uh, translations of tortures and uh, mutilations are real Uh, it's a, a real snuff. And then, in the process of exploring it, it turns out that nothing really is real. Mm-hmm. When I first saw it, I was expecting you know, like something like a normal, usual exploration of uh, how he's starting to find out if it's a real snuff movie. Something like, I don't know, eight millimeters. Mm-hmm. And uh, what it turned out is that he moved to absolutely opposite side going to some uh, imaginary world. What do you think of reality, of concept of reality? Well, it is only a concept. <laughs> That's the thing. It's a concept. I mean, when you see a cat or a dog or an ant, mm-hmm. does it have any idea of reality? Does it have a concept rea- of reality? No. It's only humans have even the I- the possibility of having a concept of reality. Mm-hmm. It is only a concept. Uh, the reality for that cat or that dog or that ant is completely different from ours. I mean, if you became your dog, you know, <laughs> what, it would be a completely different reality, and yet you could still be in the same room looking at each other, mm-hmm. relating to each other, but the reality would be completely different. So here we are in a room, 
three people, we've got a table. What, what is the reality for the table, you know? So I think it is a conceptual thing. And, uh, and humans have always, we've always, always imagined reality, you know, we've always, it's, there are many realities going on at the same time for me, for you. So, I mean, I think one of the interesting ideas in science fiction always, if you swap brains, you know, you put different brains into different bodies, what happens? Or you swap minds somehow. And I think putting one mind into a different body would make for a different reality just because of what the body is. So I think that we it is a very um, it is a very conceptual and reality is it's a relative thing there there is reality but it's a relative reality uh, do you think the questions like uh do snuff movies really exist is important no i mean i just saw a snuff movie it was on the internet it was the beheading of nicholas berg by some iraqis That's a snuff movie, and every and it's been downloaded 10 million times or more. So I've seen a snuff movie already, and uh, that's not the first one that's been on the Internet. So it's not the first understanding of a snuff movie which was sexual, although I think any murder, there is some sexuality involved as well. If you see that hideous tape... Well, of course, it's not tape. It's all digital. You know, there's strange sexuality involved. It's a very perverse thing. And uh, that's a snuff movie. So, of course, they exist now, if they didn't before. Uh, do you think sexuality is uh, always closely connected to violence? Yes, there is a violence involved in sexuality. But it's it's not a simple thing to untie, you know. It's it's a complex thing, and it's not. It's very difficult to make politics out of that. You know, there are political movements, feminist movements, and other kinds of movements which try to connect the two. But I think emotionally, psychologically, physiologically, yes, there is a violence involved. Even if you're just thinking of normal intercourse, there's a penetration. And is that violence? Is that a violation? Or is it something else? I mean, yeah, I think there's, when animals have sex, there's usually a kind of violence because there's a submission. It, it all has to do with seduction and submission and uh, in the animal world and that is in order to preserve the strongest you know in order that the strongest reproduce and that the weakest do not so there's always some kind of uh, struggle at least involved in in sexuality I think with humans it's often becomes just psychological but it's still there so I think there is sex and violence go very well together what do you think is a meaning of wireless? If violence would be uh, important in some way, I think it wouldn't exist to such extent in our world. So what actually is violence? Why is it here? What is its purpose for humankind? Uh, well, it all comes from from the natural struggle of creatures to live and to dominate. I mean, this is it's a sort of Darwinian. It begins as Darwin, the idea that as soon as something is alive, there are some there are twenty things that want to kill it. You know, so violence comes from na a natural struggle, and it's just the way that living organisms have evolved through through struggle through violence. I mean, I just was so it becomes more complex when you get to human society and we have language and we have politics and we have culture and then we think that perhaps there's a possibility of living without violence but if you go to the natural world if you go to the ants if you go to the the birds violence is you know 
creatures kill other creatures to live. We do that as well. So that is the basis of violence. It's definitely ingrained in the way that nature works. And it becomes very complex for... There's no... When you ask what the meaning of violence is, well, there's no meaning in the universe except what humans invent. I mean, so we can decide to invent the meaning of violence. And we could also probably choose to minimize violence. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are even animal rights groups who don't want us to eat meat, you know, but then if you eat vegetables, you're still killing something that's alive. So to live is to kill. That is the truth. It doesn't mean that you necessarily are talking about Nietzsche and Superman and all of that, but the fact of nature is to live means to kill something else. That's the way it is. Yes, but no other animals, as I know, are so violent to their own kind. Maybe rats killing each other sometimes, maybe some animals, when they're excited, they eat their children, but the second one it's not even violence. And people quite often are violent to each other to some extent that's not... Uh, It's hard to see, like, uh, necessarily, like, struggle for a female. Maybe it should be doing some, uh, it should have some not natural about sociology uh, meaning. What do you think about it? Well, first of all, there are animals that kill their own kind. I mean, speaking of ants, there are kinds of ants that make slaves of other ants. They actually raid the other ants colony, bring back their eggs, and grow them as slaves. So That's different types of uh, ants. Well, yes. Uh, red ants. And yes, ants. yes. But we do the same. I mean, first of all, there's na- violence of nationalities against other nationalities. Mm-hmm. Then there's violence against religions. Now, of course, this is unique to humans because it's a conceptual thing. You can see two people who are of the same species, the same race, but one is, uh, let's say, Hindu, one is Muslim, and they kill each other because of this abstraction of something that they think, that they believe. And it's true that you wouldn't find that in the animal kingdom. But it's natural that humans should invent their own specifically human kind of violence because we are a complex, unique species and naturally we have evolved our own, you know, very specialized version of violence. But I have to say, to me, it's still very natural. The thing, in fact, that would be not natural would be if we could figure out a way to end violence and not live by at least violence to each other. Now, that would be a a unique, I think that would be a supreme achievement of human beings in human society. We've never come close to achieving that, and probably we never will. But I, I think that what we do is still very natural, given that we are this unusual species. It's still, you know, yes, we don't do it exactly like the animals, but then we aren't exactly like the animals, so it makes sense, you know. But it's still very natural, as I say, I mean, in, in the abstract sense of natural. Talking about Superman, in your uh, movie The Fly, Man uh, has uh, like morphed somehow with a fly and uh, first becomes Superman and then he becomes a monster. In uh, Spider-Man movie, basically happens about the same in the beginning. Man uh, somehow morphs with a spider and then he becomes Superman and that stops. So do you think this, uh, the things uh, like changing your body and all this genetically changes 
do you think that there are most are always ghosts to some extent that you do not expect uh, they are potentially dangerous or something like that oh i think everything we do is potentially dangerous definitely yeah definitely because you only have to look at the recent invasion of iraq <laughs> to see that people can delude themselves into thinking that they can see the whole big picture and understand exactly what will happen. And then you realize that reality, and especially human reality, is so complex and so difficult that you can't really predict what will happen when you launch something so major and, and complicated as that any more than you can still predict the weather. We have incredible supercomputers, but we can never predict the weather accurately. It's almost good luck if we accidentally predict the weather. And that's because of, well, the theory is chaos theory, the idea that small changes, there are so many variables that are unforeseeable that ultimately you're going to find yourself dealing with situations that you could not have imagined before. I think that it's the same with medicine and medical technology and so on. We will unleash some things we have already that we could not foresee. On the other hand, to say, therefore, we must stop everything, that's not realistic either. We will not stop everything. It's impossible for us to do that. We have to accept what human nature really is and deal with that. There's no good trying to impose an ideal idea of what humans should be when, in fact, It's never been achieved in human history. You know, we have to accept the complex reality of what humans really are and work with that. We have to work with what's really there and not some abstract idea of what should be there. So the truth is that all of this medical technology, the DNA, the, the messing with the actual essence of the human physical reality, that's going to happen. I mean, that is happening. It, it's not stoppable. It's like Pandora's box. Once it's open, you cannot close it again. It's like nuclear technology. Once it was understood and discovered, there's no way to stop it. You, you could perhaps stop people from making nuclear weapons, but you cannot make people forget somehow about what nuclear technology is and the understanding I mean because the it's a very exciting understanding you know trying to get to the essence of what matter itself is so you don't have to make uh, atomic bombs but you probably do have to experiment with atomic energy and that's really the reality of it so I, I think yes it inevitably some things will go wrong but also some other things will go right I mean just like the technology that you're using right now we can say well it has its downside Perhaps it's destroying the earth ecologically the, to create microphones and metal machinery and so on. But on the other hand, it does have a wonderful, magical quality that we love as well. So it's always a balance. You know, there's nothing is ever going to be completely good and safe or completely bad and destructive. There's always a balance. What are the things you're afraid and what is the uh, major problems that you want to solve for yourself? Oh, I don't think I'm really, I don't feel that I have the answers to anything. And the things that worry me or frighten me are very mundane and middle class and bourgeois, you know. I have children, you know, you worry about your children being safe and being healthy and being happy. And as I say, it's very, you just have to ask yourself what you're afraid of and you, that's what I'm afraid of. You know, it's, I have no exotic fears, let's put it that way. Just normal worries about the things. And, and of course, I worry about the state of the world as well when there's a lot of war, when there's a lot of anguish and pain and so on. But as I say to me, this is normal, um, nothing exotic. And I don't really feel that I have anything more than the normal kind of 
advice to give the world, knowing that the world will not take that advice, you know, which is, it, it seems, you know, that we have so many resources, so much intelligence, so much technology, we could feed everybody. If I controlled the world, I truly believe there would be a way to minimize death and suffering, but it would mean birth control, and there are many political and religious forces against birth control. We, we'd have to control the population of the world. You know, all of those things I think are doable, but will not happen because of the difficulty of human society and culture. So when I'm making a movie, I'm really only trying to perceive what I see right now, maybe deeper than most people, maybe. But, uh, you know, I don't feel that I'm a f philosopher king who has advice for the rest of the world. You know, I can see how complex things are, how difficult things are. And I don't know that if I did control the world, I really would do a good job of it. I'm not really sure. Uh, are you afraid of losing control of uh, your everyday uh, life? Losing control of my everyday life? Yes. Uh, something going ask you and uh, some Well, for example, like you going home and finding out that, well, I don't know what, I cannot give any examples because I don't know anything about your life, but something got absolutely different, something absolutely unexpected, maybe, maybe not dangerous, but absolutely unexpected happened. Well, I think, as I say, my, my worries about that kind of thing would be very mundane, you know. I mean, you, you, you could go home and find a note from your doctor saying that you got three days to live or that your children have three days to live or, you know, you, you could find out that some medical catastrophe has happened. These are the normal things that people worry about, that they'll get the phone call saying some horrible thing has happened to someone very close to you. Those are really the kind of worries. As I say, they're very mundane, not very exotic, you know, not, not that interesting. I, I don't really worry too much now that I will perhaps lose my mind and go insane, you know. <laughs> But on the other hand, I think I know more dead people than I know living people at the age I'm 61 years old. And uh, I, a lot of my friends, a lot of people that I know, a lot of people that I admired, artists, filmmakers, are dead, you know. So, you know, you have to... But then that's philosophy. I mean, then the, that's developing a philosophy of life. I think of myself very much as an existentialist, in a way. So those are not exactly worries, you know. They're not exactly fears. I, I'm not really a very fearful or paranoid person, actually, even though you might think I am from my movies, but I'm, I'm not. What are movies you are planning to do now? Well, it looks very much like I will be doing a, a movie for New Line uh, Cinema in the, in the U.S. And it's a script, it's a project called, interestingly enough, given what we're talking about, it's called A History of Violence. Mm -hmm. And that would star the actor Viggo Mortensen. Mm -hmm. And we haven't really done any more casting than that. We've made a deal with him. So that will probably be the next movie that I do. Mm -hmm. uh, what it will be about? Oh, I don't want to... I can't tell you because I want it to be a surprise, you know, when it comes out. I hear the Philip Dick Ubik book here. Do you pronounce it Ubik? Or... I, I, I used to pronounce it Ubik, but mm -hmm. it comes from the word ubiquitous, so it would be Ubik, I would think. I wonder why you never made a Philip Dick movie except for you made a screen ad adaptation of Total Recall. Well, I tried, you know, and Existence is perhaps my homage to Philip Dick. You know, it's about levels of reality, which, of course, he his main topic and I even have a reference in in it uh, Perky Pat you know they, they take out there's a takeout place called Perky Pat's and that's a direct re reference to Philip Dick what was the story about this uh, basic instinct uh, sequel 
Oh, well, I don't, it's not probably worth talking too much about it because it's a movie that didn't happen. I know people become fascinated by that, but it was um, a script that uh, I was surprised to see that I thought was a very good script, a very dark, erotic thriller uh, that I thought could surprise a lot of people. And, uh, you know, it w to me, it would have been a lot better than the first Basic Instinct. It was quite different. So, you know, I got involved in, in uh, trying to make that happen. And uh, there was an actor's strike threatened, and there were casting problems and so on. So didn't, that's why it actually didn't happen. But I, was, I would have made that if, if everything had worked out with Sharon Stone. You, uh, when you've been president of Cannes Film Festival, you gave a main prize, well, your jury gave a main prize to Humanita, and there were some people who expected that the prize should go to Kikujiro or to Almodovar film. So do you basically think that cinema should disturb people? Well, I must say, first of all, that it was a jury decision. It was totally democratic. Everybody had one vote, and, and that's we all we all loved the film Rosetta. We gave that the Palme d'Or. And perhaps Rosetta was not so disturbing as L'Humanité, but I think it's one of the many things that cinema can do. I'm not saying that all art must disturb, but for me, well, the most interesting art is disturbing, yes. I mean that it overturns your understanding of things and it reveals things to you that are surprising and for some people when that happens that is automatically disturbing to me you know i enjoy watching movies that don't disturb you that just make you laugh or make you feel very comfortable or happy or you know that everything is normal and good you know but to, for, to make a film to spend two or three years or ten years as i did with dead ringers trying to make a movie I think I would be bored if it were just that simple. You know, I, I really want to use my films as a way of exploring complex, difficult arenas of, of understanding. And that means it often ends up meaning that, that my films are, are disturbing or unsettling. The Spider movie, it looks like quite different from the other movies of yours, because in other movies there are some freaks, some uh, very strange situation, like in Dead Ringers or like in, uh, in Butterfly. Something is very uncommon. And here we have a very disturbing but quite uh, common story about uh, a man who has uh, some childhood problems, like Freudian, and has... Uh, some uh, mental uh, problems because of it. So what changed for you? I mean, did you decide that uh, those exotic things are not necessary for the reality shifts? Well, it's not, it's not a decision like to say, I'm going to do this and therefore abandon everything else that I've done. It's just an, a different way, really, of exploring really the same themes. For example, you mentioned Dead Ringers as having freaks, but really twins are are real. They're not, they're not freaks. Uh, I, Let's put it this way, very different from The Fly, where you are inventing a creature. But it's the same. It's the same. I said uh, I's a freak, so some very uncommon situations. Yeah. Simply, when I read the script of Spider, I felt it's very close to the character of Spider. I felt uh, that I really would learn some interesting things if I explored his character and his situation. And I wasn't thinking of it as a medical movie or a clinical study. And we never mentioned the word schizophrenia in the film, even though technically you'd say he was a schizophrenic. But I really thought of him as, a, as an existentialist hero, you know, that he's a man who is stripped of all the things that we normally have. He has no family, no job, no religion, no politics. 
We don't know if he you know, has any culture at all. All he has is his little suitcase and his, and his sock that has some possessions in it. And um, when you strip away those things from any person, what do you get? The, to me, that's an interesting question. When you take all of those things away that we spend most of our energy dealing with, you have an essential man. You have the quintessential man stripped bare of everything else. And then you look at him and you see what he is. And you see how he tries to create his own reality, how he tries to create a reality out, out of his memories and his past and so on. So to me, that was a very interesting study. And, um, and of course, you can, I mean, it's a classical thing to do to take a relatively common situation and by, the, by your artistry, you hope to reveal some uncommon things, you know, to about the human condition, about a lot of things, about society and so on. So to me, though, it was just business as usual. I mean, it's just making a movie and trying to get the most interesting juice out of it. Even in terms of creatures, I mean, in a way, you know, Ray Fiennes is a, my special effect in this movie. He's a, my major special effect. He is a creature in the movie. He, he has strange relationship with his body, so there's still a lot of body things going on in the movie, even though it's not special effects, but it's psychological and, and I think very true. So to me, it, every project, of course, is different. Otherwise, you'd be bored. You want it to be different. But uh, I don't think it represents any sh change in my approach to my movie making. I'm sure the one that, if this um, History of Violence movie happens, it'll be quite different again, you know, from everything else. But then at the same time, I think you'll see my, my sensibility in it. So, okay. Thank you.